Welcome to ACE Audio, the podcast that supports, educates, informs, and motivates manual therapists around the world. Everyone, Sean Brewster here. Today we're talking shin pain. Now, the old shin splints term has been thrown around for a really long time. When we're talking about shin splints, we're really just referring to any source of pain from the shin area or lower limb tibial type area. So the term shin splints is really an umbrella term to describe a number of different pathologies in this region. It's a fairly ineffective term to use because it doesn't really give us any indication of the source of the pain or any of the pathologies that might be present. But we're going to narrow this down to three distinct different pathologies that we typically see in this region fairly commonly, particularly if we work with the athletic population or people are on their feet quite a bit. Those presentations will be, first of all, periostitis. We're going to look at compartment syndromes and stress fractures. Now, periostitis is a term that describes inflammation of the periosteum the, the connective tissue lining of any long bone. In this case, we're referring to the, to the periosteum of the tibia. Now, periostitis of the tibia also gets subcategorized in a lot of cases, particularly when we're talking about athletes or people who are on their feet for long periods of time under high load, into another category called medial tibial stress syndrome. And this is a fairly common presentation. And if we look at medial tibial stress syndrome, what we're talking about here are the soft tissues or the muscles, I should probably say, that are attaching to the surface of the tibia, the long shaft of the tibia, and are dragging typically downwards against the periosteum or away from the periosteum, uh, causing an inflammation or periostitis in this case. Now, typically this is a load-based cause, but it can be triggered by trauma, as in something strikes the tibia. For example, if you've ever walked into a tow bar, you're acutely aware of it when it happens, and that might be a, enough of a, a trigger to create an inflammatory response in that, perios in that periosteum, uh, leading to a peristitis-type presentation. Uh, if you've experienced this before, you probably can feel, usually palpate along the edge of a bone, the edge of that tibia, the medial uh, side of the tibia, you can often feel a little bit like a serrated edge knife. It's going to be very tender to touch, feels a little bit bumpy, a little bit fluidy, and can often be very painful when loaded. So when the person is walking, particularly when they're running, and particularly when they're walking or running downhill, occurs is because one of the main muscles that attaches to this bone and can lead to a peristitis traction problem is the tibialis posterior. This muscle originating from the posterior medial surface of the tibia running down into the arch of the foot is responsible for pulling up on the arch of the foot, helping to lift the arch and support against excessive pronation. But of course, we all need to pronate. And when we're going downhill, when we're moving faster, and if we're moving fast downhill, then we are more likely to overload that tissue, which can lead to prolonged pronation and also excessive inferior tension dragging down against its superior attachment on the bone. And so this is not necessarily the, the fault of the person who's taken up running or the fault of the fact that they're running down a hill. It's just a tissue capacity problem. Most uh, soft tissue-based patho tissue pathologies can be traced back to a load tolerance issue. And this is certainly one of those as well. And so we often see a peristitis or a medial tibial stress syndrome occur for people who have just taken up running, just taken up field sports, um, sports where they're moving, changing directions quickly, or they've dramatically increased the amount of load that they're being that's being applied to that tissue. So they've increased their training loads. Maybe the surfaces have changed. Maybe their footwear's changed. Something's changed usually uh, as a, 
long distance runner myself, I've certainly experienced this problem before. And when I look back, I can absolutely trace it back to periods where my training is increasing at a rate that obviously my body quite wasn't quite ready for. Or I've undertaken some kind of event or, or race where I've been doing a lot of excessive downhill running in particular um, at paces that I might not be otherwise conditioned to through the training. And so with the peristitis, we have this period of acute inflammation, irritation, pain, dysfunction. And then with rest, it tends to settle. But again, if that tissue hasn't completely uh, resolved the inflammatory process it's going through, or if the tissue hasn't improved its capacity, then the problem can return fairly quickly. So it can be a very uh, frustrating condition to, to manage, frustrating condition to resolve, and certainly very frustrating for the athlete who's trying to train their way through it. It is a condition that I would highly recommend you don't try to train through, uh, because like a lot of the presentations we see with shin splint, um, if we want to use that term, categories, one condition can often lead to another. And so while we're looking at peristitis as one presentation, which can sometimes resolve itself fairly quickly if, if the load is adjusted and the inflammation is managed well, um, then if we in the cases where that's not done well, it can sometimes lead to other presentations, one of those being chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So in this case, we have, we have to consider the fact that the lower leg um, is made up of four different compartments. We have an anterior compartment, which houses our tibialis anterior, extensor digitorum longus, and extensor hallucis longus. We have a lateral compartment, which houses our fibularis longus and brevis. We have a superficial posterior compartment, which houses gastrox and soleus. And we have a deep posterior compartment, which houses tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, and flexor hallucis longus. So all of those muscles sit within their individual fascial sheaths and they're separated by this connective tissue um, wrapping that sits around them. That helps those individual layers, or I should say it helps those individual muscles, muscle groups work independently uh, and create this smooth gliding and sliding action as we need to perform the various different functions of our foot and ankle. Um, it also allows for compartment to be uh, I should say it allows for the pressure within those compartments to be isolated to within those compartments. So, for example, we might have um, trauma, injury, exertion, swelling, for whatever reason, occur in a particular compartment. It will increase the internal pressure of that compartment, potentially affect the muscles and other structures in there, and hopefully leave the other structures alone. So that's one advantage of the various different compartments of the lower limb. The disadvantage, of course, though, is that the, sh the fascial sheaths that surround those compartments are a particular type of fascia, which is called dense irregular connective tissue, which means that it is dense. It doesn't stretch. It's not very elastic. It might stretch a little bit, not as much as we might like in these cases. Um, and it's irregular in that it, the tension can be applied in multiple different directions and it withstands that force quite well. So it's kind of like a, a tight sheet that wraps around the muscles. Now, if we were to uh, undergo a period of exercise that might lead to some hypertrophy, some growth of those muscles, then that, can, that compartment can stretch and will be unaffected in, in most cases. But if hypertrophy was to occur very rapidly, which would be unusual, but if it did, or if there was a rapid influx of swelling fluid within those tissue, or for whatever reason, there was some kind of engorgement of the muscles with blood or fluid, then that will rapidly increase the internal pressure in those compartments. And that can lead to a compression of the structures within those compartments. So that could be compression of the muscles, the tendons, or more, or more importantly, the nerves and the blood supply that passes through those compartments. So the two compartments of the lower leg that are most likely to be affected by compartment syndrome will be the anterior compartment 
and the deep posterior compartment. They are most commonly present, most commonly present uh, clinically. It is possible to have them in the other two, but it's, it's far less common. So with an anterior compartment uh, syndrome, we, this is a common one, again, brought on by runners, brought on with runners, I should say, and again, often with downhill running. So it's the controlled deceleration of plantar flexion with a heel striker as they're running down the hill, which can lead to overload of those muscles within that compartment. So at tibialis anterior extensor digitin extensor hallucis. And that can lead to engorgement of those tissues. There may be some trauma. There may be some buildup of um, or waste products from metabolism within those tissues. And then that can lead to an internal compression, which then will compress the, compress the blood vessels and the nerves within those compartments, leading to maybe loss of sensation distally, maybe loss of function within those muscles, and maybe loss of circulation distally. Those symptoms are typically transient. So what you'll see, and, and again, I've experienced this myself, unfortunately, you'll be running along doing whatever it is that you're doing. You'll feel a, a pressure increase within those compartments to the point where it becomes untenable. You can't push through it. You'll just have to stop. And for most people, they stop. They might sit down. They might rub it a little bit, have a bit of a stretch. After a few minutes, they stand up and go, well, that's gone. And then they move on and everything's fine and they pick up their activity and it returns again. So it can be quite crippling, quite debilitating um, and very, very limiting for the person who's trying to train through it or trying to you know, uh, maybe even compete through it. So that's our compartment syndrome. Now, anterior and deep posterior, I said, were the ones that are most common. Now, if you were to develop a periostitis, that medial tibial stress syndrome that I talked about before, and you didn't manage that well, that might lead to increased inflammation in that area, which would be the deep posterior compartment. So a medial tibial stress syndrome could potentially lead to a deep posterior compartment syndrome. Now we are in this case referring to chronic exertional compartment syndrome, which is an exercise or load induced compartment syndrome, but there is another type and that's acute compartment syndrome. Acute compartment syndrome is a very serious, even I would, I would consider this a medical emergency type presentation that's typically triggered by trauma of some sort. So we see this in car accidents, we see it in collisions, we see it in uh, severe supporting injuries. And so in this case, there's been some kind of usually blunt force trauma or fractured bone, which can lead to bleeding or swelling within a compartment that can completely compress the blood and nerve supply, which can ultimately result in necrosis. And so you, know, you don't see a lot of these in general clinical practice because in most cases it's traumas occurred uh, the, the dysfunction and pain is very severe it's very obvious and the person will head to hospital and uh, in those cases the management is typically some kind of surgical intervention uh, or sometimes it can also be that the pressure may be syringed out and that can reduce it but the surgical intervention is usually incision a long incision along that compartment with an open wound uh, that's then managed obviously for infection and it will slowly heal and sometimes they'll, they'll need to apply a skin graft over the top of that to close over that open wound because it will separate quite wide at the point of incision. So if you're not quite sure if you've got a compartment syndrome presenting, some of the things you'd look for would be taut, as in very tight, stretched skin. The skin might be red and be often very shiny. So it's, it can sometimes look a little bit like the cellulitis um, which is an infection of the cellulite and all the fatness under the skin. And so this uh, we, we need to consider as part of our differential diagnosis, but often the patient will present complaining of these symptoms during activity, but when they get to see you in clinic, they can't replicate it because they haven't run to see you in most cases. 
And so the clinical test for this is typically have someone get on a treadmill and run until the symptoms come on. And then they'll sometimes take an intracompartmental pressure test, which is like a little um, syringe with a valve on the top of it, or like a um, like a tire gauge almost, that measures the internal pressure of the leg. That's a pretty severe test. And obviously stabbing a device into your leg is not something you want to have done. So we try to use our clinical history to really determine if this presents. And so really asking good questions about the type of uh, sensation or, or dysfunction that, that the patient is, is experiencing. When it comes on, what relieves it, it can often be very easily traced back to a chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Management then is about, again, as you can imagine, managing load, reducing the amount of repetitive activity and trying to allow for appropriate rest and recovery. There may be some manual therapy interventions to reduce some of the swelling and the pressure and the tension and pain that the person is experiencing. But those manual therapy interventions will only ever be short-term in their effect if you're not managing the person's load as well. Rest, uh, complete rest is not the solution. Complete rest will lead to atrophy and weakness of the tissue, which then puts the person's baseline back to lower than they started. So at some point, they're going to have to return to that, their activity and it puts them behind the eight ball once they do that. So it's about really reducing the intensity, regularity, and the dosage of that activity without completely stopping it altogether to a point where they can manage it, continue to move, continue exercise, and then gradually build up their tolerance again over time. Another thing to consider is the fact that we can get compartment syndrome in other parts of the body as well. We often think about compartment syndrome as being a uh, a wholly lower leg presentation, uh, but I've, I've seen it in the other compartments of the lower leg. I've also seen it in the compartments of the thigh in an AFL athlete who was at a corky during a, a game of football. And shortly after, a few hours after, he started to get some swelling in that leg, which resulted in a trip to the hospital and atrophy of about 50% of his muscle mass within about a week. So it was really severe compression in his lateral thigh that led to a loss of a whole bunch of his vastus lateralis and a, a long period of recovery afterwards. So that's an acute compartment syndrome in an unusual location. We don't typically see that with cork thighs, but there you go, it is possible. And so it can also be possible in forearms, though less likely than the lower limbs. Um, so we should never discount this idea of a compartment syndrome presenting, particularly in the distal limbs, but can also be in proximal limbs as well. From there, again, this is another condition that if not managed well, it can progress to something else. So if we're talking about excessive load on the tibia, in the case of a, of a peristitis, if we're talking about excessive swelling leading to uh, engorgement and compression within compartments, and if these, these pressure-type presentations and tension-type presentations continue on, we can it can lead to excessive load on the bone itself and stress on the bone, which of course can lead to stress fractures. Now, stress fractures aren't super common in the lower limb unless you're doing highly repetitive, high load activities like long distance running and, and high impact sort of activities like that. But it is always a consideration. Now, the precursor to a stress fracture is stress reaction. And these can be quite difficult to pick up. Often we will use imaging, um, but imaging, again, with x-rays, won't always show a stress fracture or even a stress reaction in the early parts of that, of that presentation. So what we're looking for really here is sensitive areas on bone that don't resolve with rest, that don't resolve with unloading those tissues. Uh, if we're palpating the bone and we're finding tenderness, we can't absolutely guarantee that that is a fracture or a stress response, but we should certainly consider it and reduce our load accordingly, looking at the patient's history, the training load that they've been undergoing recently and seeing where we can make adjustments to, first of all, reduce their pain and dysfunction, and then potentially 
for imaging so that we can determine if in fact there are, is some kind of stress reaction or stress fracture occurring in the bone. In those kind of cases, it's probably less about reducing load and more about just really eliminating load until that recovers. There may be cases where we can continue to have the person exercise without load. So it might be things like swimming or pool running, where they would be running with a buoyancy vest on to continue the, the action of running and exercising the muscles involved without the impact forces going through those joints. If we catch the person before they get to a serious stress fracture, um, then we might be able to still have them doing something like cycling, which reduces the impact forces, but still maintains uh, a reasonable amount of load on the tissues so that they can maintain strength and endurance as they're going through their recovery period. So circling back to the terms uh, shin splints or shin pain, there's a lot that can go on within there. Now, th these, are, these are just three different presentations that we might see, and there's obviously for each of those a long list of differential diagnoses that we need to consider. And so when we consider our, so when we look at our athletes who are presenting with shin-related pain, we have to really do a very thorough history, ask lots of questions, particularly around recent history of their training load, looking for points where there's been a, a dramatic increase in load, intensity, or dosage of exercise so that we can identify that as a potential source, manage that while we're doing what we do clinically with our various different modalities and exercise interventions to really get them back on the path to recovery as quickly as possible. Hopefully this overview has been of help in considering some of the things that you need to look out for with athletes or members of the general public who are presenting with pain in this region of the body. Thanks. We'll see you on the next one.